Episode 130, Cottonmouth. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 6th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, KSHS.org. If you just walked away, what could I really say? Would it matter anyway? For centuries, the South had a lock on the cotton industry. But during the Civil War, some thought Kansas could bloom with the crop and bring the South to its knees. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a cotton gin from Valley Falls, Kansas. Find out if this machine, used to refine cotton, was part of a larger strategy engineered by a neurotic senator from Kansas. Then, we go behind the scenes to witness the return of the usher dress. Worn to Lincoln's second inaugural ball, the dress spent the last year at a laboratory where experts attempted to return it to its former glory. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Margaret Mitchell, author of the wildly successful Southern novel, Gone with the Wind. Was White the inspiration for Rhett Butler, a dashing brigand, or was he more of an Ashley Wilkes type? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Cottonmouth. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a cotton gin used in Valley Falls, Kansas. The gin is uh, basically kind of a wood box with a spinning comb feature. Uh, On a metal plate mounted on the side, the text reads, Southern Cotton Gin Company of Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Um, Cotton and cotton gins are typically known for the Deep South. Why was cotton almost exclusively a Southern crop? And uh, what was the impact of cotton on uh, what was the impact in the South of cotton farming? Well, it's probably exclusively a southern crop just because of climate alone. It, the further north you get, it doesn't really grow quite as well as it could. You get up around Virginia in the south, it sort of folds out a little bit. You get more into tobacco up in that area. Uh, it's very important because. In the Civil War, you want to have the cotton market shut down in the South so that they don't have a source of income. And that happens with the Union blockade of most ports, and it does get more difficult for them to get their cotton to Europe and to the markets that they they want. It also sort of has an effect on the slavery issue, too, because the way they plant cotton in the South, they don't follow the rotation process. They really just kill the soil by planting cotton on the same ground year mm-hmm. after year. So you need more ground out West, and that's sort of partly the reason for wanting to expand West and have more territories available for slavery to exist. So it's grown in the South pretty much because that's the climate that supports the best pretty cotton much, growth. Yeah. And cotton harvesting is pretty labor-intensive. Yes. So you need a large, cheap, if not free, 
labor pool to harvest that it. That certainly helps, yes. So that's and what's another uh, reason for wanting to keep slavery intact. And, right, because it's a bit uh, symbiotic, yeah. you know. Free labor, uh, which propels a, uh, a type of crop that requires more free labor. Right. What is the function of the cotton gin, and how does it work? Um, in particular, why is Eli Whitney and his cotton gin such a frequent trivia question? Why? There's how? been a lot of inventors in, the t- in our time, <laughs> but he's always brought up. Why, have you gotten that trivia question wrong a lot of times, have you? I have, perhaps, <laughs> yes. But why is uh, the cotton gin, I mean, what does a cotton gin do, and why is this particular invention so important? What a cotton gin does, essentially, it gets the seed out of the cotton bowl, which otherwise you have to pick it out by hand, which is a very slow, labor-intensive process. Again, this speeds it up considerably because the gin has these combs on it that allows the fiber to pass through, but not the cotton seed. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a big development. It helps save on time, money, uh, in getting the crop ready for market. As for why Whitney is a popular trivia question, I have no idea. Just, what? <laughs> How important? I just remember the famous quote of Eli Whitney's, is, which was, keep your cotton-picking hands off my gin. <laughs> uh, how important was cotton as a crop in general in the world? I mean, what... There's there's wool. Why was cotton so important? Well, it's it's used for a number of fabrics, uh, for clothing. It's a big product in England, which was one of the big markets for the South as far as getting their cotton available. It's not the only place, of course, cotton is grown. It's grown all over the place, and just about every place where it's grown, it becomes a part of the textile industry that mm-hmm. features it. So. Yeah, it, it can do a lot of damage in time of war to if you don't have that market working for you. Because that was kind of the sole economy in the South. It really was, yeah. They were so agricultural that so little industry other than having the cotton industry or cotton growing industry going on that it was easy to shut things down. And This particular gin was used in Valley Falls. If cotton was traditionally a southern crop, uh, why was it showing up in Kansas? Well, uh, there's a couple of reasons, actually. The, the main reason is is that that's usually given anyway as a, a usual reason is that they're trying to get a cotton crop going someplace else so the American Republic isn't completely shut out of the market, that even in the north that they can do a little bit. So are you saying it was kind of a strategic? It's strategic, but there's a couple another reason that, I, in fact, I just heard this a few weeks ago from a grad student doing research here. He was trying to show that there was enough evidence that part of the reason was not just to grow cotton so that you would have that for the textile market, but also for the seed because the seed could then be sent elsewhere, either in this country or even abroad, mm-hmm. uh, to grow cotton in other places, and then replace, thus replace the southern market. And in the short term, that's kind of a good war strategy. I'm not sure what they would have done in the long term when if the South was brought back into the country and you would really need their economy to be pumped back up again. But yeah, you could use the seed as a, a war weapon too in, a, in that sense. So the idea being that to kind of cripple the South, you would you would damage their cotton by, economy. Get by, it in two ways. You get it by growing the, plant, the the crop itself and using it for the textile market and use it for the seed and getting more cotton grown elsewhere. I hope I didn't ruin that guy's dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Joseph Piazik, a, a Polish immigrant, owned this particular gin. Uh, who was Piazik, and why did he have a cotton gin? Yeah, and if anybody knows how to actually pronounce Piazik's name, please let us know. We don't know. <laughs> we, we, uh, we came up with a couple different ways to pronounce it. Uh, if you come back, if somebody comes back and tells us it's Piazik or something like that, we're not going to be surprised. Uh, anyway, he's a Polish immigrant. He comes over into Kansas pretty early, actually, in 1854. He doesn't have much money. The story is that he has a quarter to his name when he gets there, and he loses that at a card game. Whoops. But he's, he actually appears to be fairly smart because he's he lives into the 20th century, and he keeps seeing opportunity for businesses. And uh, he sets up mills for both flour, for wood, uh, lumber mills. Mm-hmm. Uh Comes a millionaire up in Jefferson County, which not a small feat indeed in any time period, particularly in that time period, being a millionaire is probably even more impressive. Uh, But he got into the cut and growing business very quickly too when uh, it became available. Part of the reason that seed for cotton came here was Senator Jim Lane was, this gets back to that theory about. growing cotton for seed, that Lane's involved in this, and he's using this as a way to assist in the war effort. Senator Lane is, is Kansas's first um, first senator, and he's very uh, very political, and he's also very uh, um, connected and, oh, yes. and yeah, very crafty. He's, yes, he's a very interesting character in himself. That could be a cool things all to its own, just <laughs> talking about his uh, political career. But Piazic uh, is one of the people that gets seed from Lane to grow and is successful enough that he gets a cotton gin from New England uh, to separate the seed out. And we know he at least profited on the cotton. It sounds like he got about a thousand pounds out of it, and it was about a dollar a pound for cotton, and so he made a thousand dollars on the first crop anyway. So. So did he actually own cotton land, or was he sort of a commercial uh, a cotton gin operator? Like people would, people I think he would actually, harvest their he cotton actually and bring it the, to him. He actually grew the cotton himself on his own land. So he's very self-sufficient in that way. And, and again, that gets back to his business acumen in spite of losing a quarter in a co- <laughs> poker game. Not good at poker, but apparently <laughs> yeah. good at business. Yes, yeah, so he had a good business sense about him. <laughs> Throughout the 20th century, wheat actually became the dominant crop in Kansas, not cotton. Why didn't cotton catch on here? Uh, I guess probably the climate it just isn't suitable really for, at least in the northern part of Kansas, uh, it's not suitable for cotton growing. Uh, there is actually some cotton grown in the state today. It's done on the southern uh, border of Kansas, more or less. It's actually used as a good cash crop. It's not a large cash crop by any sense in grand scheme of things in Kansas. The company that made this gin, it's called the Southern Cotton Gin Company of Bridgewater, Massachusetts. That sounds a little odd. The Southern Cotton Gin Company of Massachusetts? Isn't that, I mean, do you know much about this company? Actually, we don't. Uh, I did try doing some research on it some time ago, but uh, there really wasn't a lot of information on the company. It may just simply be your realization that the South was the place where cotton was going to be grow, grown. It may be that they did have some backers from Southern investors. I just have no idea why. Why is it uh, Why is it called a cotton gin? <laughs> uh, what, what's with the word gin? Must one be drinking gin while they are uh, operating this uh, this device? 
Well, you know, you have to remember it was Horace Rumpel who said that. Uh, Who's uh, Horace Rumpel? <laughs> he's actually a fictional character from the TV. Okay. <laughs> but he said one time that a gin bottle was an Englishman's castle, so that is that may have something to do with it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why is it called a gin? Well, it's it, it's actually a, some it, it derives from the word engine. Oh, E N G I N E, a cotton engine, and so it's uh, in that sense. It's is that just kind of a southern mutation. Of, I yeah, don't know the if it's engine? a southern mutation or or if it comes from uh, in England, but yeah, it's just sort of ginning cotton, just some sort of mechanism to get it done is using an engine. So. All right. Well, that actually kind of makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about the cotton gin. No problem at all. Hello, I'm Blair Tara, and I'm back with today's Kansas Quiz. Now, while talking about the cotton gin, we mentioned Senator Jim Lane's role in growing the crop in Kansas. Since we're at the beginning of the Civil War sesquicentennial, that's 150 years for those of you not used to that word yet, here's a question about Lane in the Civil War. In Indianapolis, Indiana, there is a museum called the Indiana War Memorial. They have an object connected to Jim Lane that has a history linking it to two wars. Do you know what it is? Here's a hint. It wouldn't have been unusual for people to accuse Lane of wrapping himself in one of these. I'll be back in a moment with the answer. In 1865, Margaret Usher danced at Lincoln's second inaugural ball. The wife of a cabinet secretary that eventually came to Kansas, Margaret had to wear a gown fit for the occasion. Almost 150 years later, the dress belongs to the Kansas Historical Society, and it's begun to show its age. Today, we talk to conservation technician Nikayla Zimmerman and find out what could be done to save this important dress. Nikayla, in a few minutes, we'll be going into the conservation lab here at the Historical Society to unseal three boxes that contain what is commonly known as the Usher dress. Uh, the dress actually has a pretty amazing story. Nikayla, what is the story to this dress, and why is it called the Usher dress? Well, the dress does have a really amazing history. Um, it belonged to a woman named Margaret Patterson Usher, and she was the wife of John Palmer Usher, who was Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Interior. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's called the Usher dress because it was worn by Mrs. Usher. Mrs. Usher wore the dress to Lincoln's second inaugural ball in 1865. Excellent. And uh, the Ushers eventually came to Kansas, came to mm -hmm. Lawrence, right. where he was an attorney for the railroad. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he became the mayor of Lawrence at one time. Yes, they did have a local connection. That's how we got the dress. Uh, can you describe what the dress looks like? Sure. The dress is made of a kind of greenish-gray silk taffeta, though it probably didn't start out life as gray, but probably more of a blue color. It has three pieces, a jacket, a bodice, and a skirt. 
And the pieces are decorated with uh, bright blue silk velvet epaulets and trim. And the epaulets have this kind of caterpillar-like fringe that hangs from them. And the fringe has little gold balls at the end. So it's pretty elaborate decoration. Um, it kind of has a military look that you would have expected to be popular during the period of the Civil War, even with fashion kind of following military style. So. Right. So it's a full-on Civil War type dress. Like it if is. I visualized Gone with the Wind. Uh-huh. It is, yeah. This is like the full regalia mm-hmm. of, a, of a kind of a... Yes, a proper Southern lady. Belt type. Yeah, yeah, proper lady of yeah. the uh, of the period, and not made of curtains. Right, and I mean, like this is like high class. I mean, this yeah, is this presidential is cabinet. Yeah, yeah, she had to be very fashionable to go to a ball. Because who was she competing against? Well, yeah, Mary Todd. Mary Todd Lincoln, <laughs> the most fashionable yeah. of first ladies, and who had no problem spending a ton of money on clothes and furnishings and being, you know, at the height of style. So, yeah. The, de- the dress recently returned from a textile conservator, and that's mm-hmm. actually what brings us here today because we're going to take a look at it. A textile conservator is someone who specializes in uh, repairing damaged antique clothing. What was wrong with this dress, uh, and where did it go to get fixed? Well, the dress being, you know, 150 years old almost, it's going to be a little fragile anyway just because silk is not the most you know, sturdy of of fibers, it gets a little weak and it tends to break down in what we call shatter, which is basically just split. Um, Unfortunately, the dress had been damaged while it was being prepared for an exhibit. Uh, Several years ago, we had a short-term display of party dresses, and during the preparation for that exhibit, the dress was being housed in our conservation lab, and overnight we had a huge thunderstorm that caused the roof to leak. Mm -hmm. And the roof didn't leak right on the dress, it leaked near the dress, but the the hem of the dress, you know, being on the ground, it just wicked up all the water, yeah, just like a big paper towel. And um, so once it dried, there was staining along the hem, and the, the fabric was really crispy right there. Well, I believe um, that there is a crowd of staff that is starting mm-hmm. to gather that want to take a look at this dress because they know you're about to open the box. So what do you say we go check it out? All right, let's do it. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Oh, yeah. This netting was completely gone before, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she replaced all of that. And she stabilized this netting that was around the edges. She didn't replace all of that. It's all stuffed like it's a mm-hmm. it's human shiny. torso. It's shiny again. So it's shiny. The blue's a little brighter. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have all these little fringe things falling off anymore. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Because mm-hmm. we couldn't even display that before. Mm-hmm. It was a mess. Holy cow, look at that. That's amazing. And it's not all crispy anymore. I wonder how she did that. So we just opened the boxes with the dresses in them in the lab. We took a look at them. Um, After opening the boxes, Nikayla, what was the first thing that you noticed about the dress? Well, I think the damaged hem looks awesome. It's almost like you you can't tell that it ever happened. It looks great. And the silk um, that the dress is made out of also has some of its sheen back, which before was kind of dulled out, but now it kind of has a shine to it again. Yeah, it does. Um, So, you know, in a a big big picture kind of way, what was done to the dress and uh, about how long did it take? Well, the actual work on the dress took about nine months. It started in April of 2010. Um, 
the dress was cleaned, and that doesn't mean that like she threw it in the washing machine and then hung it out on the line to right. dry. Because just um, to be clear, I mean, the, the dresses of the 19th century, they weren't meant to be washed. No. You and, wore them once in a while. You had your, you had your under, undergarments, which gave you that mm-hmm. barrier. You didn't get the mm-hmm. dress, to, you know, nasty, although they did get a little nasty, but... You weren't supposed to get wet. No, and and this would have been cleaned not even – you can't even describe it as hand cleaning because basically you're laying it out and you're cleaning it section by section using the distilled con- water. You're talking the conservator. Yeah, distilled water and paper towels or I think she maybe used baby diapers to soak up the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're doing it in a very controlled manner because, again, you don't want that water just going everywhere because you can create more stains. And even when you do it in this manner that's very – very isolated, localized, you have to be careful that you don't put water on one area and let it leak into another and cause a stain that you're going to have to take off again. Mm-hmm. So it's a very long and complicated process, especially when you think of the size of the skirt. You know, it's it's huge. Right, it's a big right. It's a Scarlet skirt. O'Hara-sized skirt. Right. So, I mean, it would take a really long time just to clean the skirt. So the actual cleaning took a while. Um, and then there are areas that were weak that were reinforced with a fine net product just so they're a little more stable. They're not just going to split apart. Um, and the bodice itself underwent a lot of stabilization and a little bit of reconstruction. Um, the usher dress cost about $2,500 to repair. Mm-hmm. Um, how did we come up with the money to do this? Well, part of the money came from a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, or IMLS, as we call it. Um, IMLS is an independent agency of the U.S. government, and they kind of are the source of federal support for museums and libraries. And one of their goals is to help museums conserve artifacts of natu- national significance, which, of course, this having been worn to Lincoln's inaugural, is kind of a one-of-a-kind thing. So mm-hmm. they were really interested in this piece. Um, some of the money also came from our what we call Pennies for Preservation program. Um, if you visit the museum, you may see a container in the exhibit gallery that has a sign asking for your help in preserving some of our more, most important collections and our delicate artifacts. Um, and we just ask for small donations. So, like, if you have pennies in your pocket, just throw it in the bucket because over time it adds up and we get a nice little nest egg to put towards matching your grant or something like that. And right now, if you visit the museum, the Pennies for Preservation bucket is by the Carrie Nation dress in the 150th exhibit. So in a way, you kind of helped preserve the legacy of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. How does that feel to kind of be part of preserving something like that? It's pretty cool. It's it's. It's nice to know that future generations will get to see it. I don't take much credit for it because we really had an amazing conservator, and I was just like the middleman getting it there. But it's nice to know that we've saved something of such importance that future generations will get to see. Blair again, and I am back with the answer to the Kinsey quiz. It's a flag! During the Mexican War, Lane commanded a regiment from the state of Indiana, which was with General Winfield Scott. At the end of the war, Scott had regimental flags made and presented them to his regimental commanders. Lane kept the flag, and when the Confederate guerrilla William Clark Quantrill raided Lawrence, he took the flag from Lane's home recovered sometime later in Missouri and turned over to that state's adjutant general. Seeing that it belonged to an Indiana regiment and not being aware of any connection to Lane, he returned it to the state of Indiana, where it can be seen today at the Indiana War Memorial. 
And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alla White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. Today, we connect William Alla White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Margaret Mitchell, author of the book Gone with the Wind, one of the best-selling American novels of all time. Rebecca, would you like to give us a little background on Miss Mitchell? Gladly. Margaret Munnerlyn Mitchell. That's an interesting... That is an interesting... <laughs> That's very Irish. Munnerlyn, it's like M-U-N-N-E-R-L-Y-N. Uh, she was born November 18, 1900, and grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, the daughter of a lawyer and a suffragist of Irish Catholic origin. Hmm. <laughs> Did you care to comment? No, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Irish Catholic origin. <laughs> yeah. After graduating Westminster School, Mitchell attended Smith College, a women's liberal arts school in Massachusetts. She withdrew after one year and returned home after her mother's death from the flu of 1918. That's the big pandemic, mm -hmm. right? The Spanish flu. Shortly after, Mitchell became a journalist at the Atlanta Journal, often interviewing local socialites. She divorced her first husband after discovering he was a bootlegger, I don't know why, <laughs> and soon married the best man from the first wedding. Dra one, what? Drama. <laughs> Drama, yeah, yeah. One bad boy and one nice guy. Oh, but which was which? Hmm. <laughs> this is all sounding familiar. Yes, it is. Well, you know, artists, I mean, authors are supposed to write from life, right? Right, from so, what they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitchell wrote her epic southern tale of Civil War Reconstruction while bedridden with a broken ankle. Published in 1936, Gone with the Wind won a Pulitzer Prize and was adapted into a hugely successful film. Indeed. Mitchell was often criticized for never writing another novel and for the fact that her book completely ignored the morality or immorality of slavery. What are you, what are you talking about? How <laughs> much Gone with the Wind? Everybody's happy there. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Even when they don't know nothing about birth and babies. Yeah. <laughs> well, sadly, perhaps, uh, for her anyway. Sadly, Mitchell died in 1949 when she was struck by a car in Atlanta. Ooh. I don't know why I'm laughing. That's not funny. That's, that's a horrible thing to die. That's Rex. a horrible ending. So let's not think about that. No. Let's think about the fun we'll that was associated with tomorrow, it. Yeah, tomorrow is another day. <laughs> think about that another lady. day. <laughs> All right, thank you, Rebecca. Now on to the game. Uh, Rebecca, as the contestant, you will hear two, uh, two chains of connection between Mitchell and William Allen White, and you will have to pick which one is the uh, correct one. This is tough. Yeah? <laughs> Wait till you hear them first. All right, Nikayla, you want to give yours first? Sure. Uh, Margaret Mitchell was reportedly a distant cousin by marriage to Doc Holliday, the well-known gambler, gunfighter, and, yes, dentist of the Wild West. Some believe... The Wild West dentist. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? Some believe she based the character Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind on Doc Holliday. Well, shortly after participating in the gunfight at the OK Corral, Holliday moved to Colorado, where he lived in a cabin near Estes Park, and one of his neighbors was William Allen White, who liked to head to the mountains to escape the brutal Kansas summers. Hmm. That's scenario number one. Yeah. Scenario number two. 
The main character in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind is, of course, Scarlett O'Hara, daughter of Southern plantation aristocracy. Many believe Mitchell based Scarlett on the very real Martha Bullock, a daughter of one of Atlanta's most elite families. In 1853, this Southern belle, better known as Mitty, married a young New York businessman and also kind of heir to the fortune. Um, who was he? Theodore Roosevelt Sr., Five years later, the two gave birth to Theodore Roosevelt Jr., and as we know, William Allen White and T.R. were BFF. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so Scarlett is based on Teddy's mother, which is the correct scenario. Scenario number one, Wild West Dentist. <laughs> or, sen- <laughs> or scenario number two, Teddy's Southern Belle mother. Um, I have to say, I, I just have to pick Teddy Roosevelt, but you know, I'm torn. Is it both of them? <laughs> Are you trying to pull a trick on me here? I think I, we I, might be. I know mine. No, mind. I don't no you're just totally made I don't up. Think totally made. Okay, I was. I don't think he lived long enough because exactly. didn't he drink himself to death or he something? Did. He did. Yeah. He died in like I think the in well, like 1881 or something like that. So uh-huh. before White was ever really going to okay. Colorado. Yeah, yeah, he was still a young and then. So yeah. for yeah. clarification, my scenario, scenario number two, by all accounts, I mean I don't. Nobody knows exactly uh, what Margaret Mitchell was. Um, if, if it was 100% based on Teddy Roosevelt's mother, but many believe it was, that, in fact, she probably knew exactly who she was because Mitty Roosevelt or Mitty Bullock and the family lived in Atlanta, very well known. Okay. And a lot of her characteristics are also seen in the character of Scarlett O'Hara. Very interesting. And, and I picked it really because it involved Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, I mean, that's I, always a sure bet. It's, it's a safe thing. <laughs> safe, yeah. But to be clear, Margaret Mitchell was... Related yes, to yes. Doc actually, Holliday. That's you, interesting. You can connect um, her to William Allen White through Doc Holliday and Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. Because when when Doc Holliday retired to Colorado, where he um, ended up, the town he ended up in last, um, Teddy Roosevelt visited there one time in his travels across America. Man. So, Well, so I'm it was you. kind of right. Then it just wasn't the way you totally yeah. you described it. but. Yeah. The rich got to get out of their social niche. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Nikayla, you want to give us the challenge for the next episode? Sure. For our next episode, we turn up our pinkies as we watch a royal wedding unlike anything imagined when we connect (laughs) William Allen White to Kate Middleton, potential heiress to a British party decoration empire. Oh, yeah. She is also marrying the Prince of Wales. So come back in two weeks when we connect White to Kate Middleton. Uh, Was White well-versed in crashing royal weddings and drinking all the good booze? (laughs) Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 130, Cottonmouth. If you would like to see images of the cotton gin from Valley Falls or the dress worn to Lincoln's inaugural ball, go to our website kshs.org While there, be sure to fill out a podcast survey, or better yet, like us on Facebook by searching for Kansas Historical Society. In the next episode, collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson examines a cavalry saver worn by the African-American officer Major John M. Brown. Born in the South before the Civil War, Brown came to Kansas and broke every stereotype of the day. Hear the twisted tale of why this man took black soldiers to Cuba to fight Spaniards. 
This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.